Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Truth About Real Estate podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Jeff Love from Gibbs Giddon Attorneys at Law in Southern California. He focuses on real estate and investing, um, and that encompasses you know real estate transactions, including uh, negotiations, purchase contracts, sales, syndication, and financial transactions. Uh, welcome to the show. So glad to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's learn more about you. Like you we had a quick conversation at first and you've been a real estate lawyer since 2009. How did you even get into real estate law? Well, back in kind of college, I'd look at family friends trying to decide what I wanted to do, like most people that age, and I saw people investing in real estate, you know, not not just wealthy and, and making money, but really were entrepreneurs buying and selling. I liked seeing something come of nothing. You know, blocks as a kid, people were building buildings, developing, and that really stuck with me. So I decided to go to law school with the intent to be a real estate developer, but I wanted to learn about the law. I wanted to understand contracts so I could you know, know what I was reading and understand everything. Somewhere along the way, you know, I went through law school, learned about real estate transactions, corporate transactions in general. And after graduating, it was a downturn. So people didn't want a transactional attorney, much less in real estate. So I worked at two different companies. The first was a recycling company as a general counsel, helping them with their corporate transactions and doing a little bit of real estate, lease here, purchase there. And then I eventually left to get more into real estate. I joined a real estate development company as again, in-house attorney, and they owned about 18 million square feet of retail and industrial space throughout the country. And I was doing leases, purchases and sales, creating companies to hold the real estate, looking at title and easements, really anything and everything to do with real estate. And I loved it. And I, that is that point I realized that I wanted to work with more clients, you know, big ones, small ones in different stages. And I like being behind the scenes rather than being the developer myself. We're getting to work on different projects. I realized I do like being the attorney behind the scenes. So I joined my current firm and have been doing this type of work ever since, uh, real estate and corporate work for clients of all different sizes. Is it uh, like real estate law, is it completely different from corporate law, patent law, business law? What do you think about that? It is very similar to business and corporate law. So what I do are transactions. I don't do any litigation, so I never, I never got to go to court nothing like the lawyers you see on TV and, you know, law and order and those type of shows. <laughs> what I do is uh, I deal paper a lot and negotiate deals. So someone's buying a building and I will help them draft the purchase agreement with all the essential business and legal terms and then negotiate with the other side and help them through the entire transaction through looking at leases and due diligence, um, anything that comes up. And the same thing is really the same with you know, business or corporate law. Instead of buying a building, you may be buying a business. So you're doing a similar purchase agreement and your due diligence instead of on a piece of property, your dirt is on a business and their contracts, their employees, um, their, their business plan. So the business and corporate law, which are kind of interchangeable, are very similar to real estate transactions. There are big differences between these areas in, in patent law or, or trademark or employment law but there is a big crossover between corporate and real estate. And even with the client, it may be a business client. And one day we're helping them with negotiating a contract with a vendor and the next day they're doing a lease. So for that same client, we may be doing both types of work, whether it's corporate or real estate transactions. I think real estate law is a lot of fun. Like, even though I'm not a lawyer, I like contracts. I like the negotiation. I like learning about all different aspects of the real estate transaction side of it. And when you, especially when you get to work with lawyers, talk to lawyers and understand how they think about things, where they see different gray holes, you know, and how they interact with other clients, especially in commercial real estate. There's so many different ways you can draft a contract. And there's so many different variables for each property type that you want a really good lawyer who has the experience to make sure they're covering everything you can think of. And there, I've seen some really crazy like letter of intents, like, you know, super complex, but simplified in a way. And once they kind of go back and forth with the letter and everyone agrees, they draft it with lawyers. But even then, when you look at how they write things, sometimes you can tell they're using some tricky words that kind of can 
put you in different situations. And that's where your alert comes in and says, hey, let's rewrite this. Let's negotiate it this way and make sure it's super clear on both sides. But it's really uh, interesting uh, topic. And also you have to be really meticulous about making sure you're covering every single thing. You're absolutely right. And a really good lawyer can get those points across, mm -hmm. but do, do it without using legalese, which is those complex legal words. There are better ways to say it that is clear and that everyone can understand. And a good lawyer can take that complex concept and simplify it so everyone can understand. But one of our jobs is to you know, analyze risk and exposure. So while the client may want, you know, I really want to buy this building, it's a great business deal. They may not be thinking, well, there's a gas station next door and what type of environmental liability does that expose me to? Or is, what type of condition is the building in? It's not just numbers and the, the real estate lawyer's job is to kind of quantify those risks, explain it to the client and let the client make an informed decision, whether they're a buyer or seller or a tenant before they enter into that transaction and help them mitigate that risk whether it's using different entities or changing contract terms to make sure that you are getting your business deal, but we're limiting as much risk as you can and making it a qualified risk that makes it a better transaction and better business deal. I think one thing too, like some of the misconceptions I see when I work with clientele is like, you know, uh, when you deal with lawyers, of course, lawyers win in the sense that, you know, they're taking your money. Uh, the second part of it is that, you know, there's different, so many different price ranges from example, 250 an hour to 650 an hour or plus. And then how do you justify the differences? And even though someone charges more, is it because they have better marketing, better sales, or actually better experience? And it confuses people, uh, you know, clients, uh, buyers and sellers on the transaction. And sometimes you say, you know, you get what you pay for, and hopefully you can get someone to do it. And then there's also the part of, okay, what's the lawyer's goal? Is it to hopefully get you out of the ish any issues quickly, fast, and cheap as possible? to make sure you're covering your base, but also not going to a exorbitant amount of spending to get what you want. And there's different types of lawyers, like some want to just fight for what's right rather than what's cost effective. Some are like, let me just get you in and out the fastest way you know, possible, especially for like buyouts, um, evictions, LS Act or other agreements. Yes, those are all great points. And they're different types of attorneys with, with you know, with, with any profession, you've got good ones. And you, fortunately, there are some that are that are not as good. And, you know, what you don't want is an attorney that is going to bill just a bill, or that's going to wordsmith a document, you know, driving up the cost, even if it makes it you know perfect. When you from a business standpoint, you want to be efficient, you want something that works, but you need to be cost sensitive. And, you know, spending that extra couple thousand dollars to fine-tune one provision when it doesn't have a material business or legal impact may not be important to the client. And that's something the attorney needs to, to realize. On fees, you make a great point. Some of the times the fees are driven by geography, you know, just an attorney in Los Angeles or San Francisco, you know, may be a, a cheaper than an attorney in um, Salt Lake City or Houston, you know, depending where the attorney is, that's a driver on rates. A new attorney, that has two years of practice is going to be significantly cheaper than one with 10 or 15 or 30 years of experience. The more experienced the attorney, the higher the rate is going to go. What you want to do is you want an attorney that you feel comfortable with because you may say, okay, I'm going to pay this attorney $500 an hour and this attorney charges 250. Mm -hmm. but how long is the $500 an hour attorney going to take to do my assignment versus the one that's 250? Yeah. 500 can do it in an hour, but this other attorney at 250 is going to take three hours. The more expensive attorney is more efficient and will actually be cheaper to you. Yeah. So you said it's, it's, it is kind of, you get what you pay for in a sense, but it's also about efficiency, the attorney's experience and their experience in what you're doing. What we like to do is always offer clients, you know, a fixed fee if we can or budgets. So sometimes we can't predict how much the other side is going to negotiate. So it wouldn't be fair to say it's going to cost a thousand dollars because we just don't know. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is we can offer a budget and keep the client informed. Because what I like to do is I never want someone upset about a bill. So I like to keep them in the loop as to what we're spending and, and how much time it's taking and work within that budget to get them the results that they want. So 
these are questions you should ask an attorney when you're engaging them so that you understand the relationship and that there's never any surprises. Great points. And it really does make sense. And I think some of the hard challenges for some clients is that some attorneys actually have a consulting fee. So, oh, you want to talk to me just to get to know me? I'm going to charge you my hourly rate at 250 to 450 or plus. I'm like, really? It's hard. Like, I can't even get a five, 15 minute conversation just to ask a question and see how you work to get an estimate. Some are, no, I'm busy, you know? So then, of course, you don't have to work with them, but we hear they're good lawyers too. So it just gets difficult. Who do you choose upfront without knowing really? your situation and how to deal with it with that lawyer and their uh, personal experience on that kind of type? It's hard. Uh, and, and that's a good point from both sides. You know, attorneys, we typically bill by the hour. So spending even you know half an hour with a prospective client is, you know, it does cost money and it's half an hour that you couldn't spend on another client. That said, you know, we never charge for consultations because you know, we want the client to get to know us and see if you want to engage us. And well, you know, me personally, I wouldn't spend an hour on a phone getting to know a client. Sure. You know, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, because I want to show you that, you know, our experience that, you know, we know what we're talking about, how we work, make sure you're comfortable with it and then engage because some attorneys, you know, what, what you know, I think what kind of separates, you know, us and, and, and some attorneys is you're in it for a long-term relationship. So devoting that 15 or 20 minutes up front for a five, 10, 15 year relationship is something that's worth doing where if you're doing one assignment and you never hear from that client again, that's maybe some attorney's business plans, but the way it can, I operate is it, it's an investment on both sides. Yeah, client, taking time to interview different attorneys. You don't know that one's right. You may be referred to this person, but you want it. It's a two way interview. Yeah, I completely agree because you want to know the client too. And also the fact is I think one thing that helps too, if you have a really good real estate agent or a team who has a, you know, kind of like a console or like a team of vendors who they work with and constantly provide business to each other, th those lawyers know that, hey, my real, the real estate agent always, you know, refers good clients to us, helps each other. They understand the situation, understand how to work together, what makes sense and have a really valuable team to help clients. And that helps like, for example, CPA, your lawyer, your escrow, your vendors, inspectors, whatever. But having a team formed around helping your clients makes it a lot stronger because you can have a trusted real estate attorney kind of guide, guide them through the process and you kind of know upfront what they need. Uh, to do that. And I think one thing I tell my clients too, is that when you work with a real estate attorney, I pref I personally prefer always working with the attorney directly rather than their associates. I know sometimes the associates are cheaper upfront and then the attorney will uh, review afterwards. But sometimes you can tell for some lawyers, they're so busy that they actually don't work with you and they just hand it off the full all the way to the end. And that's actually not the most beneficial or, or cost effective for the client themselves, you know, especially on a complex transaction. That's right. And that's something, you know, we, we use associates as well. And it's it's a client by client situation. Sometimes there are benefits to using an associate at a lower rate and having a partner review it. But you're absolutely right. In a complex deal, that attorney may be rewriting everything or reviewing it. So it's, it's a question that you can ask up front and tell the attorney what you want. But you make you know great points about a team as well. We tell our clients the same thing, not just an attorney, but with real estate investing, one of the biggest mistakes that I see clients make is not having a proper team in place. You used it in the context of kind of referring to an attorney, but I think you know you have a good real estate agent or an accountant and ins uh, insurance broker because you're relying on these professionals to help you in areas that you don't know. And having that team in place is going to make you a better real estate investor because you're able, able to rely on other people's expertise as well. And that team may have worked with each other before, you know, if there's a referral, we get a lot of our work from referrals because someone will work with us and say, I like this person. I know this person, I trust them. You know, they're able to handle the deal that you have. And when I get a referral from that person, I know that that person's going to refer someone that they trust as well. So we're already starting off at a more beneficial relationship because there's that, we, we both trust that person in common rather than if someone were just to call me or I were to call me a potential client, we have that mutual source between us that we both trust and like. Exactly. And, I, you know, like having brand advocates who actually do business with you uh, actually generates you like a seven times uh, growth in terms of referrals. Like that person who works with you, you have a good relationship, good business, and you work well together. They're going to give you like seven times, seven more clients at least. And then that can keep expanding uh, throughout multiple levels. And that's just a great way to handle business, you know, 
build it by re relationship as well as new uh, prospects. But that trust in long-term relationship adds so much uh, long-term value that it's something really to appreciate over time. And hopefully people, good people work with you that have not too crazy deals, right? Or hairy. <laughs> um, so one thing you, I, we, we saw too is that even though you're a real estate attorney, you actually got your broker's license as well. But as an attorney, I don't know, do you necessarily need it in terms to, of contract law but versus real estate practice? No, you don't. Yeah. Uh, I use my real estate broker's license on the side. I invest in real estate as well. So sometimes I'll use that um, to either you know, every now and then maybe represent a, a client in a separate context or use it for myself to put offers on different buildings. Um, to be in a practice real estate law, you just need you need, you need your license to practice law. Um, to be a real estate broker, you need to pass the brokerage test with the Department of Real Estate. Um, I got it because I was able to, with, with practicing law, you're able to do it without the special education classes because we already have that, and I use it for different contexts. But it's helpful because you know I've done brokerage in the past, so I'm able to relate to brokers, understand their needs, and also work with them because I have that license and I have practiced in that field before. Nice. And I think it's great that you have, you know, you're, you're a broker as well as, you know, you practice real estate law. So you kind of, you kind of see more things than normal people do and you understand it, you know, in the complexity it can be. And I'm, I'm sure you try to simplify it so everyone can understand it and not make it, um, yeah, too wordy for them to deal with. But have you started investing in real estate first or did you get your uh, license first for law? I got my license to practice law first. I've started investing the last few years and it was really driven by looking at clients and seeing what they're investing in, learning that taking some you know excess cash and instead of investing in you know, equities or stock market um, bonds, uh, real estate was a great source to accumulate wealth and passive cash flow. So, what I did is, you know, myself and my wife, we actually took some of that money and bought an apartment building close to our house that we manage. And, you know, our investment strategy is really to leave, you know, to grow that wealth and leave to our kids. Um, every, everyone's different, but I'm able to use kind of the real estate law and, you know, as a, as a kind of a side business or just an investment strategy, invest in real estate as well. I'm glad you're doing that too, because real estate, I think for me, like real estate investing is one of the most important things to do, and especially to teach your kids and able to provide to your kids. Creating that passive income and cash flow will help um, provide college funds easier, I think, and that one day you can hand off these properties to the kids, you know, if they're lucky. Um, and if you buy some single family homes for them in the future too, you can kind of help guarantee for yourself as a parent later that they, hopefully they live close to you and you can, you know, take care of the grandkids and have fun, right? Yeah, there's there's so many benefits to it, not just from you know the, the tax deduction, but whatever your strategy is, whether it's you know value add real estate, and I'm focusing on cash flow. Um, you know, ours is a little bit different because it's it's more of a long term investment you know, with a you know residential paper that it's you know four unit building, but that enables you know will grow in value over time. We're actually able to gift some of it already to our our kids, and they'll learn as they get older about you know, any distributions they get. They have to manage their money use that for college and eventually um, be able to inherit this this building um, hopefully be able to buy more in the future and use that as a way to grow wealth and pass it on to the next generation um, apart from our you know my wife and myself's uh, day jobs yeah and i love it I, like i started investing in real estate when i was 24 and bought san francisco real estate and it was a lot of work and a lot of fun and some risk involved of course but i think that it's so much easier in a sense of if you can save and build and even if you do a low down payment and get in the door that over time the equity appreciation the constant cash flow hopefully you're getting good positive cash flow um and then just waiting and just keep saving and keep building and buying your next one over and over um will help you grow tremendously versus a job a job is pretty stabilized over time is still going like this but you know the benefit of passive income tax depreciation and the equity growth alone is tremendous right you're right. And you've, you've hit the multiple components is not just appreciation over time, but you also have cash flow coming in mm -hmm. and depreciation. So you're kind of making potential making money three different ways for, you know, it may be passive, you may be managing it. So it might be a separate business, however, you're operating it, but you are be able to take advantage of all three of those versus a salary and a job that you are, 
you know, working in based on your hours where real estate, you know, you could potentially be making money while you sleep, which is the same, you know, with passive income. It's something that you invest in and you are getting returns on that money. That's like Warren Buffett. You got to make money while you sleep and, you know, you got to learn how to create passive incomes. Otherwise, you're just going to be on a hamster wheel all day forever, right? That's right. And real estate, you know, as you know, you kind of grow in your kind of investment career, real estate is an important asset class. It would be a mistake to just invest in, you know, equities or in companies or bonds or for that matter, just in real estate. It's good to have a diversified portfolio. And, you know, a lot of my clients, they have big chunks of their portfolios in real estate because they've realized the value of it, whether it's um, residential in an apartment building or it's a retail property or office, industrial, mobile home. There's, there's a lot of different assets in real estate that you could use to even further diversify your real estate portfolio. Very true. And for me, when I look at uh, real estate, I actually, I love multi-unit real estate. I love the growth in even commercial multi-unit uh, real estate versus the direct commercial. And one thing I mentioned to a lot of agents of mine is like, if you go into commercial real estate, you know, you're dealing with businesses, you're dealing with retail offices, those eventually could shut down. And that was pre-pandemic, even 10 years ago, I was always talking about that. And like, look at your vacancy factor, look at the risk and look at your um, TI, you know, and dealing with those kind of things and long-term vacancy, those factors alone are can be you know really cause a lot of headache right in dealing with that versus in commercial multi-unit real estate you know people need to live they need a place to stay they're willing to pay for it over time your vacancy is way lower and then your growth hopefully in equity and um cash flow will be better even though commercial real estate less kind of less work in a sense that the tenant takes care of everything if you have a triple net they take care of everything but in a sense you know how do you feel about the commercial versus the um apartment side of real estate i think there's pros and cons to each i mean right now retail is is really suffering and so is office and there's going to be a big shift in what some of these buildings are going to have to do and the owners of them are going to have to do to deal with the vacancy that's you know undoubtedly coming residential you know you're right people always need a place to live especially if it's in a good location by their source of business but the downside of residential in, in, in some cities, you, you have rent control, you have new restrictions on that. But, you know, the, especially in L.A. County, where I am, the, you know, really California in general and big cities, you have a housing shortage. So people will need a place to live. So I think, well, pros and cons to each. I am a big fan of, of you know, residential as an asset class, especially, you know, not just the two to four units, because you can treat it as residential in terms of, of, of debt. But the more units you get, the more leverage you have on that piece of land. So it is a good asset class to do. And it's one that's familiar. You know, if it's your first investment, you may not understand triple net or dealing with a broker to lease to a uh, retail tenant or have the funds to buy an office building or a big industrial park. But to go and buy your first single family residence or a duplex to use as an investment may be easier and you're able to get your feet wet with real estate investment. And kind of, as you said earlier, grow and buy another one and maybe sell that duplex and buy a four unit building and an eight unit. And there are tax strategies, including a 1031 exchange that allow you to do that and roll over your tax basis so that you're able to exchange into bigger properties and grow your investment. Nice. Yeah, completely agree with that. Um, so now, you know, let's talk about the real estate law side of things. So when you look at uh, people doing transactions, what are the common things you see in terms of like negotiations or uh, some mistakes, things people should be aware of upfront when they're getting into real estate? One of the biggest ones, and it's not necessarily on a contract basis, but which I can cover, but on a high level is really not thinking ahead. So I've got a lot of clients that want to start investing in real estate and they may do it with, with a partner, but they don't really think about what's my three year, five or 10 year plan. Just last week, I had to deal with, you know, quote unquote, you know, what I'll call a business divorce between two partners in a real estate business because one was younger and one was much older. And the older one wanted to take the cash out of the business, kind of move towards retirement. And the younger one wanted to keep everything in and grow. And as a 50 50 partners, it eventually led to a dispute and they couldn't agree on the future of the business. So, from a high level, it, whether it's in yourself or with partners, one or more is thinking the, the future of the business. What are you going to do in terms of investing? Even if you don't incorporate or organize, if I'm buying this duplex 
is is my goal to hold it for a couple of years and exchange it? Am I going to hold this for my kids? If I'm bringing on an investor, what's what's really the life cycle of this investment? Because that helps you with your business plan and really what terms of the investment you're investing in. Um, in terms of like a contract basis, you really want to look at your risk and exposure. And we kind of talked about that earlier. That's one of the areas I focus on. So in a for example, in a purchase agreement, let, let's say we're buying a 10 unit apartment building and we're the seller. Well, we want to limit our representations and warranties and our exposure once we sell the deal. We don't want to sell the deal and go on to buy a 20 unit building and then have the buyer come back and say, you didn't tell me this about the tenant or you didn't tell me there were leaky faucets and I had $100,000 in expense and now I'm going to file a lawsuit against you. So you really want to not only limit representations you're giving in terms of a contract, but also maybe limit your liability. So I'm only going to be liable for X amount of money, you know, no matter what. And you can, if you're going to bring any claim, you got to do it within six or 12 months. So after that period of time, I'm completely done in that building past investment. I can wipe my hands of it on the reverse. Let's say we're a buyer. Okay, that's an important deal for the seller, but as a buyer, I really want to focus on things that may tie my hands. Do I have enough time for my due diligence period? And have I negotiated that? Because you may say, no big deal. I've got 30 days. And if I don't like the project, I can walk away. That's true. But how much money have you spent on due diligence? Have you spent money on attorney? Have you done a phase one or a survey or a property inspector? And you just need 10 more days to complete it, but the seller doesn't want to give it to you or you, you're caught up on a financing contingency, your lender hasn't given you approval and you don't know whether to waive your contingencies or not. So negotiate those business terms and negotiate things with the seller. Seller may not want to give a bunch of representations and warranties, but you as the buyer want them because you want to know what the seller knows. You may not have time in your due diligence period to learn everything. It may take you six months after you close. So it's important to get the proper representations that the sellers, you know, not aware of any environmental damage and that the leases they give you the record representing are accurate. Um, you know, they're the owner of the building, certain basic representations that you're able to rely on, not only through the contract, but once you actually close on the property. I think those are all great points. And yeah, one thing I see um, for seller wise, you know, sellers, of course, in the commercial side of real estate are trying to limit their exposure as much as they can in the commercial side, you know, they don't have to do certain disclosures as residential does. So it gives them a little more leeway, although technically they still should disclose what they know. But in the commercial side, they don't, they don't always do that. They expect the buyer to figure it out themselves. Here's the building, here's the numbers, you figure it out. And if it makes sense for you, right? So that's a little more tricky in that sense. And yeah, definitely um, setting your expectations as a buyer to do your full diligence on your timeline that makes sense. But of course, you know, the seller wants to rush you through the whole deal and get their money. So that's complicated. But even then, the hairier it gets, the more you should do your due diligence better to make sure, especially on a big transaction, because there's so many things inside you don't know until you actually go and see it and until you have the real inspectors, especially on phase one, phase two. And um, just going through every single unit, for example, or in commercial, going through all the space and checking environmental, especially in uh, permitting and future plans to make sure that would actually work and within the timeline. So that's a little trickier on that end. For the residential side too, um, I see some buyers nowadays and, and people are going in non-contingent, but that's that can still be really risky because there's issues you don't know about, even though your agent like, oh, the house looks fine. It doesn't mean it's really fine. There could be issues like APN issues. There can be issues with um, habitability issues. There can be structural or um, easement issues. You don't know until you're in the deal but by going non-contingent just because you're in a competing offer makes it really tough and you're putting all the liability actually on the buyer instead of yourself or instead of the inspectors or whatever you know but i see people do that all the time to win the deal you're right and there's a, there's a lot of risk there not just you may be tearing down the building but what about title issues have you looked at title to make sure the seller actually own you know owns the building what if there's a what if there's a big easement down the side of the property and you're your business model is to, to fix it and flip this real estate. But part of that was to expand the footprint. Well, if there's an easement, you may not be able to. So when you go non-contingent, it's really important not just to understand 
the structure, but you have to look at a title issues. And if you know, set up a single family residence, if we change this to a duplex, well, now you might have tenants. Do you understand the leases of the tenants? Your agent may say, you know, hey, they're they're month to month. You can leave, but have you looked into the local rent control provisions? What if one of the tenants has a five year lease and you haven't actually looked at the lease ahead of time? What we counsel clients, no matter you know what the deal is, if there's a tenant, always get an estoppel certificate, which is a document that said the tenant will sign and essentially represent to you as the buyer or sometimes to a bank that what's in the lease is accurate. This is the term of the lease. This is the monthly amount. There's no defaults because I have had clients in the past that just look at the lease. Okay. This, this is what the deal is that seems sufficient, right? But the seller inherited the property from a relative and they don't, they don't know otherwise and client close. And lo and behold, a couple months later, the tenant presents them with a, a letter from the original owner, the seller's relative, and they had a three-year lease. The seller thought it was a year and um, couldn't even raise the rent for those additional terms. And that letter superseded the lease. If we'd gotten an estoppel certificate in that context, this, the tenant would have had to alert us to this letter. So even though you know, there's a potential claim against the seller, you don't want to buy a lawsuit. You don't want to deal with the headache. So you really want to do the due diligence and understand it ahead of time, especially if you're going non-contingent because you're putting your deposit at risk. So you want to understand that maybe as much as you can at the outset. And yes, it is a competing risk with, you don't want to lose the property or the deal, but you also don't want to buy a problem. So you need to weigh the non-contingent and the timing versus buying that problem and making sure you've done all the due diligence that you can. Yeah, and especially those, we want to have a sophisticated team who actually has experience in those kinds of areas and representation uh, like you to do that because, yeah, there is a lot of risk involved. I think, yeah, having a estoppel especially uh, definitely, I would say, helps a lot because you're they're stating what they know, what the tenant knows, what the tenant thinks about everything, and you can look at it and say, hey, actually, that doesn't make sense. That's not what we talked about. You can kind of discuss that, but if you have a lease, yeah, everything after lease could have been verbal or written somewhere in the email and you never saw it and they didn't give it to you as the new buyer would not see it. Right. And then you just putting yourself into issues. But uh, I see in some places too, they actually have estoppels, but they don't have any leases. What do you think about that? It's usually strange. You know, I, I I'd rather have an estoppel than nothing, but I do like a written lease because even, you know, in California with, with rent control where you may not be able to get a tenant out for certain items, at least helps protect you in terms of making sure if you want to require the tenant has rental insurance or making sure that, you know, if they're going to have a barbecue, that it's within a certain distance from any improvements to avoid fires and to limit noise. And if there's not a lease, you're relying just on essentially California law and statutes and the estoppel certificate can, you know, get a representation for certain terms, but it doesn't bind the tenant to the terms that would be in a lease. So I normally always encourage you, even if you're buying a building without a lease, the tenant's going to stay, try to get the seller or yourself to actually get them to sign a written lease with the terms that you need. But in California and certain cities, uh, the tenant doesn't have to sign any lease because they're already in there. They're already paying you and they can give you a stop all, but they're not even required to sign that too sometimes. That's right. And that to me, a lot of times that's a red flag that that may be an investment that I don't want because I'm not comfortable buying it without that lease because well, the, the tenant can really, they can do a lot of things that I may not want them to do. Maybe there's a common parking area and they park in the middle and then, then I don't want that. Or they are smoking and I want it to be a non-smoking building and I can't stop that. So while you're right, certain cities, you, if they're in there, you, you can't require them to sign a new lease or an estoppel. If they're not willing to, you know, I encourage you to get it. If you can't get it, then maybe you take a step back and that's not a property that you want. That's a business decision that the client, the buyer ultimately has to make. Exactly. And I usually encourage my, my clients, hey, don't buy into headache, you know, try to buy opportunity, but don't buy headache as much as you can try to avoid it, especially if you know, or at, at minimum, have a lease agreement, have exactly knowledge of who's living there, a stop certificate to prove it and go from that risk alone, rather than having nothing. That's way too risky for me. I would pass on an opportunity unless you can guarantee a buyout at close of escrow and they already out. You know, but then it's tough for those situations. You're absolutely right. You know, sometimes it could be a killer deal and you're gonna make a lot of money, but how much is that headache 
for you for dealing with these issues and is it drawing away from your other investments or uh, your job how much does that diminish the return that you're going to get we're all looking for that, that that you know that great deal but you want to avoid the headache or a lawsuit or just administrative work dealing with tenants and trying to get people out you know, to me and to my clients that's not something that we're willing to deal with so it's it's kind of a risk and reward type situation and deciding if, if that's really a property that you want based on those factors exactly and i think like in, in real estate investing there's a lot of opportunity out there you just got to be able to find it you don't go looking for the headaches unless it's such a great deal that makes sense but usually i would leave those to the lawyers like having lawyer clients who actually are investors when you find a headache problem and they're willing to deal with it because it's their corporate law that they can do the uh, real estate practice and they have the time and money to do it they can make the opportunity but for a normal buyer or seller investor you don't want to do that because you're not the lawyer to be able to do this whole thing at your own cost or time or time right <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great point, and, but that's that lawyer brings. That's kind of their experience, and that's their job, so they're able to deal with it. Whereas, if I'm a you know a doctor or an accountant, and I'm buying a property, I may not want to deal with that or have the experience to do it because it's not my job. And, and even as a real estate attorney, I don't want to buy a problem. You know, life's short. You know, I've you know want to deal with with practicing law and my investors making money. I don't want to buy even if i'm capable of dealing with it i may not want to in that case i'm in a way how good of an investment is this property versus this headache that i might be buying and if the one hand isn't a lot bigger you know higher than the other one that might be a property that i pass on that makes sense and i agree with you time is really valuable regardless of being a lawyer or not time is valuable you got to make sure you're choosing the right things that can bring you opportunity you know the, the easiest opportunities the, the better um it makes more sense for me. Um, so what kind of tips do you recommend or things that buyers should be aware of when they're uh, trying to buy uh, real estate or even investing in real estate? What should they kind of take, take notice of? I think the first thing you really want to understand the property that you're getting into, you know, even from a legal perspective, you know, am I buying a single family residence or a duplex or a retail and understanding what that involves? Because I have a lot of clients, you know, you may watch, you're watching HTTV and you're seeing someone flip a single family house. And, oh, that that's that's easy. I could do that. I've got great design taste, but what you don't see in, a lot of times in these shows or reading or you know blogs is the costs involved. You know, you may have carrying costs because you're getting a loan on this, especially if it's private money that you don't always see in terms of profit versus what they're spending on the house and the improvements. You may you may not understand the insurance cost if unless you're a contractor. You may not understand what it takes to deal with a contractor on a large scale and sticking to a budget and to time you know, when you're when you're flipping a house and you've got expenses on a daily basis with interest the more time the more money so really no matter what asset whether it's residential or retail you know dealing with a retail tenant and what that involves or office in terms of full service building understanding the investment is i think paramount Let's talk about this. You actually mentioned a good topic, contractors. And when you work with contractors, of course, you want to work with a licensed contractor. But even then, you know, when you look at their contracts, some of them are pretty simple, straightforward. Some of them are not. And uh, one thing, one major thing I see is they don't have a timeline. For example, I get a project, I'm going to ask you for, you know, payment, four different payment types uh, throughout the, the part of it. But at the same time, I don't have any minimum or maximum uh time per day per week per month or even uh ending time so they some guys take a take your money up front as much as they can and they'll drag it on for four to six months they'll demo day one they'll be gone for a month do you see people having running to issues like that too you do and a lot of it is negotiating it up front you know sometimes sometimes you're unable to and that's just the function of if i want to deal with this contractor in this situation but a lot of times when we try to do that we try to put together a construction agreement, whether it's, you know, a, a form agreement that they've used or one that, that you have or that your attorney drafts. And one of the ways to, you know, what you want to do as the you know, client is watch the costs and watch, watch the timing. So different ways to pay a contractor, you know, one is cost plus where you're paying for the cost of materials plus, you know, their overhead and profit. Another one is a guaranteed maximum price where this is a fixed sum. There are pros and cons to each. You know, if you're using a guaranteed sum, you know what you're going to pay, but 
have you really outlined the materials that you're putting in because you don't want to think that you're getting you know beautiful stainless steel appliances and the contractor puts in you know used appliances because they're trying to save money because they're only getting a fixed amount versus cost plus where it doesn't matter to them what the cost of the materials is because they're getting a 10 percent you know addition on that so one is negotiating how they're being paid and one of the things we try to do is you know put in a you know, schedule of values for you know what everything is going to cost put in a schedule of time where they have to meet certain milestones and they're paid on those milestones or use incentives or disincentives right? if you're done by x date you're going to get a 10 percent bonus um, and sometimes that goes over you know that's a lot more palatable to a contractor than if you don't miss if you miss this deadline then you're going to pay me a fee as liquidated damages so using one or the other we've had a lot of success with incentives because if the contractor meets that date they're going to get a bonus um, thanks so using a lot of different uh, you know these different mechanisms to make sure that they are motivated to get it done so they don't take your money up front and it drags on you know three six months and it's not always avoidable but if you have a good written agreement in place it actually helps it'll help you mitigate that risk and keep both parties honest and try to meet those terms of that agreement i think that's one of the scariest part of, the, of being an investor who actually does like fix and flips or even invest in add value because the fact is you have to have a really good contractor that you know and trust and referred by but even referrals can turn into nightmares um, because the fact is you know sometimes they need the money sometimes they're doing multiple projects and they're spending all their money in between and they're not managing their books like a corporation they're just managing like a you know entrepreneur and dealing with their time issues or like calculations of how each project and how to allocate each uh, worker or sometimes with COVID, some workers don't want to work and then it just causes issues to your project and i would say that most contractors i talk to they don't want to take a penalty on a contract agreement and they might blame you for timing permitting or inspections things like that but if in actuality let's say your experience you knew the project takes four months but they just dragged it on for six months because they have another bigger project they're going to take on and then they delay you so it's really hard to kind of balance it out and to find really good people also at a cost effective rate because some some guys are like oh you have a nice house i'm just going to charge you two three times more just because i can and if you want me you want me you know so that's a challenge for contracting world right now and those are all great points like i said you know this disincentive the, the penalty doesn't always work contractor just may say no you maybe you get in with the incentive or you have those milestones where you know i'm only going to pay you you maybe here's small sum up front but i'm only paying you when you complete these milestones and you give me the lien releases on that work so if you do disappear for a month that i'm able to terminate you and get another contractor to stay in and i'm not out of pocket more than i need to be because i've only paid you for the work that you've completed and for the contractor they're still being paid for that work that they've done and it does happen a lot they may have too many projects going on they may have employees that won't come there may be other events that prohibit them from working but one of the ways to, to help that is just open communication is you know the contractor communicates to the client hey this is the issue i need more time even if you're more willing to give it where if they just disappear but it definitely is a balancing act and that goes back to what we talked about as a great team a referral may turn bad but you know if you've worked with someone before and you trust that person and you have that good contractor maybe on your team because this is your second or third project and you can trust them it alleviates a lot of the risk because they know you know they're going to perform like they have in the past. Yeah. Um, so one question I was let's talk about some questions regarding like, purchase contracts and legal parts. Um, so what do you see as the main issues for buyers in a residential purchase agreements or residential contracts? With residential contracts, you know, what one of the biggest things I think is is timing because as you pointed out earlier, you know, with residential sellers do have to give a lot more disclosures in California, at least typically using the California Association of Realtors form, which more or less has all the provisions in there and you're familiar with it. So from a buyer, I just wanna make sure that I'm aware of my timing, that excuse me, I'm able to get my due diligence done on time, that I'm not waiving contingencies before you know, I don't really want to waive my physical contingency and just rely on my loan contingency. If I'm worried that there's going to be something happening or if I haven't done my due diligence or if it's a unique property and, you know, it's 
it's next it might be residential but it's next to a gas station and there's other work i want to do so it's really thinking through the timing issues and also from you know potentially a liability standpoint are you planning on buying this property in your own name or an entity if you're doing it in an entity have you checked with your lender to make sure that you're able to get financing in that entity versus as an individual so kind of thinking not just you because residential typically is a simpler acquisition not always but generally speaking it is but if you check with your third party consultants with the debt or service providers and making sure that everyone can meet those timelines so you're able to get through the transaction and still have time to do due diligence even if it's a single family home maybe it has a tenant maybe you have a property inspector you want to use but they're busy and then you have to scramble to find someone else so I think timing, especially now more than ever, is one of the, the keys you want to be aware of when you're entering into a residential deal to protect yourself. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I would add on to like really understanding, hopefully from your agent and from their uh lawyers is that even with rent controls with tenancies in place with um you know tenants vacating even within a 59 day period with owners vacating within a 59 day period with um you know buying with a seller going to vacate after 59 days dealing with covid um dealing with many other forms of things but having a full understanding of a good big picture and not 100 complete or you know legal proof but having a big understanding of what you're doing how you're getting to it what's all the solutions up front and making sure you're comfortable with it to get into the deal before going in and talking to your team to understand what you're doing to make sure it's a good smart investment is one of the key factors i look at when we're helping our clients um, how about for sellers? What do you look at when uh, you're representing a seller and dealing with residential uh, real estate? Timing is still another big issue among others because with sellers, you, a lot of times we might be seller might be exchanging into another property because they don't want to pay taxes. So as a seller, you don't want to get yourself stuck in the middle. You don't want to have to have your buyer close so you can buy your uplink because if you what happens if your buyer goes through the process and they don't waive their due diligence or what happens even if they waive their due diligence and they don't close is the deposit if it's residential might be three percent is that enough to protect you if you've put a three percent deposit on a more expensive property and if your buyer doesn't close can you close on that new property or do you have to back out making sure that you're really not caught in the middle and residential you have limits on limiting your, your liability and, and representations but in the commercial context as a seller you really want to you know pay attention to that residential you can't as much but you you want to be aware of kind of the timing you want to be aware of uh the buyer have you looked into them you know your, your agent's typically going to, going to advise you but how much due diligence has your agent done on this buyer you know, are they really approved from their lender or did the lender get a pre-approval and just run it through their automated system? You know, have you verified their finances and that they're able to close? Um, these are a lot of issues that we run into because especially now with so many multiple offers on homes and people are, are you know, buying more is making sure that your buyer is qualified because you don't want to, even if you don't have an uplink, you know, you don't really want to waste 20 days, you know, have the property come off the market and then have to come up back on if you don't have to because you didn't do the diligence on the buyer or get appropriate information to make sure that they were qualified to actually go through the acquisition very true i think one good point i see uh, brokers some brokers mention is that they want they want the actual actual proof of funds regardless of a pre-approval or not because there has been times when you see some brokers they say yeah the pre-approved oh from the lender said it but then of course the agent didn't know they never asked for proof of funds they thought they're pre-approved they took the lender just wrote up a paper saying they're pre-approved and didn't really run anything you know then pre-approvals you know it's not just that it's you know you might be pre-approved a pre-approval letter is still subject to verification of income and credit so just because you potentially have the down payment or the income the lender could still deny them you know especially with people you know you may own a business and maybe that business had ppp proceeds and well the lender is is more conservative and they're treating that as a liability the lender may not approve you. And right now, more than ever, you know, especially the big banks have a lot of conservative underwriting policies where they may not give the buyer credit for their current residence unless it's on the market. They may not give them credit for certain income. So 
really take that step and get, as you said, maybe the actual proof of the bank account, the pre-approval letter, talk to the lender, and you know, really ask your agent to do kind of due diligence on the transaction. But it's also your job as the seller to to make sure your agent has done certain things because you know. You may have a great agent, but you want to verify for yourself as the buyer or the seller certain items because an agent has certain responsibilities, but they're not there to do all the due diligence for you. You know, as, as a buyer or a seller, there are certain things that you either need to do yourself or your agent may help you, but ask them to help you. Or if it's outside of their scope of, of work, you know, engage that attorney or that accountant or that insurance broker to be able to help you. Yeah, and I see that too. Like, for example, you can buy a home, but and you can say it's not subject to the sale of your home, but it doesn't mean you're still qualified. They're still going to have to run two appraisals. They're going to have to verify incomes, rentals, take the vacancy factors in place and still qualify you. Has the lender done any of that yet? And verify your leases, existing or new leases, you know? It gets tough into situations, but not all uh, sellers would be aware of that and not all agents are aware of that either. And it's tough and you can ask the lender, but some you have to kind of like really do your due diligence on your the buyers at place and what they're doing and ask the right questions to understand to make sure you're taking the best, strongest, easiest offer and maybe even having a backup lender too to verify. Even though the seller, my buyer might not want to do that for additional work purposes, but it's just to secure the deal. And those are great points. You know, it's it's not always the the highest offer may not always be the best offer, you know, what, even whether it's all cash versus a loan, it's really, as you said, I, I like that, you know, it's asking the right questions because that's how you're able to protect yourself. Yeah. And I believe that just comes with experience over time. And, you know, as an agent and an investor myself, it just comes with the experience to know what people have gone through, what issues agents or buyers and sellers, investors go through and learning how to ask the right questions to see what makes the most sense. And I understand times of essence, but at the same time, understanding the full picture before accepting anything. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think about real estate syndication? I know we have a few more minutes, but I would love to talk to you about real estate syndication and your thoughts on that. And like, for example, sponsors, operators, blind pools, fund to funds. It is growing more than it ever has. You know, syndications years ago, you didn't hear as much about them. They were, you know, they've been out you know, decades. People have been doing them, but with you know, changes in securities laws, and especially with all of the new crowdfunding websites, it's becoming so much more easier for us. So much easier for a sponsor, which is the person that runs the syndication, or the investors to find each other and to do an investment. So syndication is really, you know. I have a property and I want to raise money from different investors to be able to come up with the down payment or the entire purchase price. So I'm syndicating that investment to these various investors and the Securities and Exchange Commission makes you require, you know, comply with certain restrictions if you're raising money from an investor because you're selling them a security. You're selling them a piece of that company you know, usually that owns the real estate. So they make certain restrictions whether, you know, you may have heard accredited investor or non-accredited investor, and that's based on certain financial parameters that the SEC has put forth. And the syndicator, if they want to sell to non-accredited investors, which may not have as much income or a net worth as an accredited investor, you're usually not permitted to advertise. So you can't do your crowdfunding websites. You can't post it on Facebook or certain social media. Whereas if you're doing selling to only accredited investors, you can advertise. So it opens up your investment to a much wider pool of potential investors. Um, that's why you've really seen that explosion because, because you are able to advertise and people are able to buy real estate in other states and use that as a vehicle for additional passive income and get a, you know, a great preferred return or an IRR on their investment, which may be you know, their savings account or the, the bond or mutual fund that they're currently investing in. Yeah, I actually love real estate syndication because I see the fact is this, if you're an active investor and you're investing in you know one to four units or even five plus units, you're active, you're dealing with the property, dealing with all the risks, you're dealing with the loan, the headache, the managers, the vendors, that's one way. And what cap rate are you getting actually? Are you getting you know three and a half to six, seven, eight maybe, depending on what state you're in, what, what city you're in and what kind of property type uh, versus a passive investor can go into syndication and you know uh, meet with sponsors, find good operators and and passively invest and they might offer a not a preferred return and that preferred return might be greater than what you currently have 
and they also have you know cost benefits um you know depreciation benefits for you to pass through the k1s right and that's another way it's a different style because one is you're active you're going to get cash flow you're going to hope for equity and you're going to deal with the risk involved versus going passively into one and that one might be a 20 unit might be 450 unit and in the bigger it gets, hopefully the less liability in the sense of, you know, you believe it, it's in a good area that it will grow and you'll make money. And the difference too is who's buying these properties, mostly institutional investors. So if you can get into the deal, you know, in the future, if it's going to have add value, uh, institutional buyer will probably want to be, in, will be interested in buying it. So if you look at the numbers and it makes sense for you, it might be less headache, less work, but you're passive instead of active. And it's also a good diversification tool. You know, if you had, while well, example, a million dollars to invest, do you buy, you know, a million dollar duplex and you're paying cash for it, or do you divide that into five different syndications? And one might be a retail property, one is an apartment, one's in California, and one is in uh, you know, Denver. So you're able to diversify your portfolio. And as you said, you're no longer active; you're passive, which you know has pros and cons you know you're not actively involved you don't have the headache of managing it but you are relying on that sponsor so when you're deciding to invest in that syndication you want to make sure that you understand you know, not only what the sponsor is getting paid for putting the deal, deal together because that may come off the top but do they have a track record and are they are they qualified to be the active investor and actually run that project on your behalf especially if you know they're a, they're a new investor or they're going from the track record is small apartment buildings and now they're buying a hundred unit apartment building just making sure that you understand their experience and you're comfortable because you are passive so you are putting your money in their hands with certain protections but you want to make sure that they're able and willing to um, kind of manage the deal for you yeah and i think for syndication something to be aware about is that there's many many different types of syndicators there's new syndicators there's experienced syndicators there's syndicators who do certain types of syndications of properties and there's um big kind of like institutional style syndicators so you want to make sure you vet all the syndicators that you want to work with and vet their experience and their knowledge and um, background and, and the team who they're working with and vet the team to make sure you have a full understanding before you invest into their syndication. But once you get going with really good operators, then you feel more comfortable. You can slowly keep investing and watching. You can also diversify. I like the diversification because you can go to different states, different, um, different kind of economies and figure out what's best for you and start tracking the records of how the performance is in each area and track the sponsor as well. So when you get more and more into it, you can put diversify further as you go along. Some of the biggest names out there might be performing the worst. Some of the smallest names out there might be performing the best, but you won't know until you actually start engaging and understanding and looking at their track record to figure out what's best for you. And you're right. And it's also different types of investments. You know, you may be in a syndication that is doing a ground up development deal versus a value add, a core holding, it may be mobile homes, it may be a certain type of industrial property, as you said, in different states. So it really, you know, not only allows you to diversify, but see what asset class, you know, is performing the best and what asset class that you prefer to hold based on, you know, your investment strategy. Yeah, I think that that gets really fun. And I think when you add that with real estate law and the full understanding of investing and trying to figure out who to work with and looking at the all the details, uh, it helps you have a better understanding of it and hopefully make good informed decisions about each one. And just being able to be in different states way quicker and to go into bigger units. Like I'm in three passive ones already and I'm working on active ones as well for syndication. It's fun because it's a different scale. Like I liked being in a 450 unit. I like being in a 150 unit. I would never be able to buy it myself at a hundred million dollar plus or $450 million. There's no way as a one person easily can do that. But being a part owner of it is nice to see. Mm -hmm. and, and, it gives, yeah. and it gives you that, that difference. As you said, you wouldn't be able to buy it yourself, but you're able to get the return that potentially was at one point was reserved for institutional owners that had that type of cash flow to be able to buy it. You're able to get your pro out a portion of that by investing in the syndication for those larger, uh, larger apartment buildings.
And I think one thing, as uh, especially as for example, younger generation, I think the best thing is to be uh, learn and educate yourself as fast as possible on all the different types of investing you could do, and feel comfortable with what you want to do, and figure out and ask questions. Ask a lot of questions to figure out what makes sense for you and who's willing to show you or work with you and invest, um, so you can do that. Um, in terms of like legality wise, I think you know looking at. Anything you do, um, figuring out if you're partnering with people, if you're investing with people, if you're doing joint ventures, making sure you have um, you do your legal structures up front because you don't want to just jump in, get married, and then figure it out as you go along because everyone has a different mindset, uh, different work ethics, and also different goals. Even if they say, yeah, the same goal, in actuality, well, it depends on the dollar amount. If What happens if you made a lot of money and one person wants to sell and you don't, right? It changes so quickly in a second, and that's when you get into legal trouble. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of having that same mentality and making sure everyone's kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, making sure that everyone's on the same page and you understand the, the goals and the strategy going forward. I think that's the hardest part for people is that, you know, the, most people say they just want to go to opportunity first. They No one wants to sit down and say, let's go fill out all the paperwork. Let's get married and let's define every single part of the deal to make sure we're comfortable before we go to a deal. That's the the most challenging part of it. Even if your brother, sisters married or whatever, right? It is, and it's again, it, you know, everything in law is really the risk and the reward. It's you could jump into the deal, you know, not document anything, but when you if you if and when you run into that problem, and if you do it that way, more often than not, you do. How much does it cost to fix it? You know, kind of just to use a different example, I get clients all the time that maybe use an online service to create an LLC to hold real estate. And a lot of times it works, but it's never a one size fits all. So it might be a unique property in 12, 18 months, they come to me and say, Hey, I, I formed this LLC. It doesn't work. Can you fix it? I said, yes. <laughs> but you know, the problem is it would have been cheaper to do it at the outset than it is to fix it. So a lot of times it's, you know, doing as much as you can. I've got a client that, you know, very large, you know, residential flipper and in the very beginning he didn't have contracts for anything you know he, he just you just started you have to do what you do but over time you know that he's had lcs and now he's moved over to limited partnerships to save on taxes he's now vertically integrated with his own construction company and own real estate brokerage and you know even if he looks back on it you know would probably smack himself and how did i not have any of these protections in place years ago but there wasn't the budget for it so it's I'm seeing how can I really minimize that exposure by maybe creating, you know, one LLC or, you know, organizing one company or having this one contract and really thinking, yes, it is, it's an expense, but how much is this upfront expense going to save me down the road? And you're weighing that versus I've got no budget for it versus I've got this and I'm able to create this, you know, this structure that'll help me down the road. I think one part of it too, is you mentioned it's an expense. I think the keyword I like to use now, it's a liability protection. That's great. I'm going to have to borrow that because yes. that is absolutely true. You know, while it is, you know, money coming at the door, you're protecting yourself from liability in the future, whether it's creating an LLC to hold my apartment building because I'm worried that there's going to be a party and a slip and fall and I don't want them to, you know, be able to come after my other assets or it's, creating entities to hold two different properties because one has environmental exposure. It's I'm protecting myself from liability by doing certain, certain different things, whether it's entities or contract with my contractor or reviewing my syndication documents, because I want to make sure that I'm protected um, from a claim against an investor or a third party in the future. Exactly. And I know it's tough. And I think the part of it is like people, of course, we want to go to the opportunity. They don't want to deal with like, I need to learn how to do all this legal liability protections and all these other issues. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I just want to buy a house, right? And that's the scary part too. Yeah, I understand the opportunity, but really it is a liability protection and you need to think of it as part of your strategy and team and expense at a certain point of protection. But that's kind of helping you, not guaranteed, but at the same time, giving you some kind of, you know, just... Um, mental being able to sleep at night and just say, okay, I have some protection. I have LLC. I have insurance. I have all these things in place to protect me going forward with investment. And I, I use that as a way to build my team to build more investments because now I know I have you know corporate lawyer. I have lawyers to deal with things. I have insurance. I have policies in place to kind of protect it. Not bulletproof, but it sure better than nothing. 
It absolutely is. And it's, it, it helps you sleep better. And the most important thing is if we're real estate investing to make money, we don't want to subject our other assets to a claim. So using that structure, whether it's an LLC or it's insurance, that helps us make sure that our investment is uh, you know, a standalone investment. And if something goes wrong there, then it doesn't affect all of our other investments. And the more you invest, the more property you have, you know, the more successful you get, the more there is that need to protect what you've already built. Exactly. And that's where, you know, over time, you can start with the first one and try to do your best with what you can do, what you can afford, what makes sense. But over time, build your team up, build your uh, your lawyers up. And, you know, like most all companies, they have a war chest, right? And they use that as protection. It's not as expense. It's just protection for them to keep growing bigger and bigger and building what they, they're dreaming of rather than, hey, I need this expense to go, you know, fight whatever. That's right. That's a good point. Cool. Any uh, final things that you think our audience should know about in just getting into real estate, investing, um, things they should just quickly be aware of. I know we already mentioned timing I already in our contingencies to make sure they're in place, but anything else they should kind of be aware of upfront? I think it's, it's, you know, it's scary going into kind of your first investment or different property type. And it's, it's okay to be scared. You know, everybody makes mistakes. I think it's the most successful clients and investors that I deal with are the people that learn from those mistakes. It's never going to go smoothly on your first or second project or investment. There's always going to be some type of little hiccup and it's what you do when you hit that hiccup. If you learn from it and don't make it again, um, that's what makes you successful and able to you know, kind of scale your projects. So I think it's, it's not to be afraid to get into something new, but learn about it, understand it as much as you can. And especially if you do make a mistake or something goes wrong to be able to learn from that so it doesn't happen again. And I think for me, um, one thing I would mention to clients is that make sure you're working with a strong team again and that has the experience and background knowledge to help you go through these because this is one of the biggest purchases uh, in your lifetime. And it might be multiple purchases, but you want to make sure your team understands what you're doing and tries to help you go through those and has a vendor team to work with you through all these things. It makes you really think about it. And they're here, like we're here to guide you, to consult with you. We're not here to sell you. We're here to provide value. And you might have an agent who's your mother, brother, sister, whatever, but you want to make sure this is a big investment. Work with the people who you think is going to help you and is patient enough to guide you through this and is not here to just sell you a property. And then that would be a long-term way to keep growing your investment and not have to deal with things like, oh, that guy sold me a property. Great. You know, I just spent too much over or I didn't see all these issues up front, you know? Right. Cool. And how do people uh, reach out to you? How do they get to work with you? What do they need to know when they want to contact you? Contact me through email through the website. It's www.gibbsgiddin.com. Um, email is jlove at gibbsgiddin.com. Always happy to answer questions, talk to new clients. Um, anyone interested in working with me, just you know, give me a call and I can see how I can help. Perfect. Uh, thanks so much for being on our show. Uh, for everyone out there, check out our podcast, The Truth About Real Estate, on YouTube, Facebook, and on, of course, Apple Podcasts and more. And we'll talk to you guys soon.